An old farmer early in the 20th century brought his family to the big city for the very first time. They, they had never seen buildings so tall and all the hustle and bustle of the big city. The farmer dropped his wife off at a department store while he and his son went to a nearby bank, which was the tallest building in the downtown area. As they walked into the lobby, they saw something they'd never seen before. There were two steel doors that opened and a rather large elderly woman walked in and the doors closed behind her. They saw the hand sweep to the right and then sweep back to the left and the doors opened again and, and, and out came a beautiful young lady. The farmer was amazed and turned to his son and said, you wait right here. I, I'm going to get your mother and run her through that thing. Uh, it's the, the miracle of transformation, uh, how, how God can change. The, the text we're looking at today really deals with the transforming work of God. Uh, the people on the island of Crete, uh, where Titus was serving, uh, they, they were ministering for God in that place, but to be a Cretan was to be uh, someone that uh, had a very negative image. That They were habitual liars. They were quite crude people often very fierce and uh, uh, in their habits and styles of living. Uh, they were called lazy uh, Cretans or to be a, a glutton. Uh, maybe the contemporary today would be someone that was uh, gluttonous in their styles and appetites. Their life began and ended with their stomach. They were vain and rude and cruel, ill-mannered. Uh, physical appetites dominating their lives, and they were going to hell, and seemingly they were going there with great gusto. Yet God had done a great work on the island of Crete, saved a number of Cretans, with Titus being Paul's emissary uh, to establish order and normalcy in their local churches. Special attention is given in the book of Titus to the ethical demands upon the life of believers. The elders to be appointed uh, needed to be of a certain quality of life that he notes in chapter 1. They were to have a proper understanding of their duties in their church. Not only were the elders to be men of godliness and integrity, but so were every category of people. And Paul in Titus 2 speaks to older men and to uh, younger men and to older women and to younger women, to bond servants, various categories of people. And they were all to adorn the doctrine of God, their Savior, in the appropriate manner. So whether it's old or the young, servants or masters, each was to make God attractive by the manner of life they were living. God, you see, had gained a foothold in that dark island of Crete. And he also gains a foothold in our lives by grace. And that's where we begin the text today. The epiphany of God's grace, Jesus Christ, saves and transforms sinners. First in the text, just note some simple ideas. You'll notice the use of the word epiphany. That's the word in our English text, the grace of God has appeared. God's epiphany first is to sinners, and that's an epiphany of grace. 
Now, last week I gave you a long, and I will again, extended definition of grace. But again, if we reviewed the idea of grace, grace is unmerited favor from God. It is God giving the desire and power to do His will. Grace is God's current provision to meet my momentary need. Or now the longer definition, it is God's unilateral intervention in the most hopeless situations, personally intervening in our lives in a way that He alone can act with results that He alone can produce. The grace of God has made its appearance, its epiphany. It has been manifested. By the use of the the, the, the verb here, he's talking about a, a particular appearance. And, and that he speaks of the manifestation of grace to humanity in the presence of the Son, Jesus Christ. We might point to two primary events of that appearance. That would be the entry of God incarnate, God the Son incarnate at his birth. But then even beyond that, the, the manifestation of grace that appeared as Jesus laid himself on the cross of Calvary, as Jews and Gentiles alike conspired to put him there, and then as he's raised at the cross of Calvary, seeing him die on behalf of sinners, there is the manifestation of grace to sinners. This epiphany is described by Paul as a salvation-bringing grace. It's permeated every category of society. Uh, he spoke early in the chapter of old men and younger men and older women and younger women and bond servants. And so it's likely here he was re referring to the grace of God penetrating every strata of society. It's interesting today to look at how society responds to the gospel of Christ. Modern man does not understand the historical person of Christ because he does not accept the central core of this epiphany, which is God saving. And so God's epiphany saves. It's not merely something that makes man savable. It's not mere potential. It's rather, this is a salvation bringing grace. He, he will bring sinners from their place of judgment, their place of alienation, their place of being apart from God, and will actually bring them into personal relationship with himself by the payment for them in the person of Jesus Christ. It is a salvation uh, bringing grace to all people. And this is not, again, merely a potential salvation, but rather is actual and effective. And so when I'm thinking through that, I, I'm thinking through people that I have regularly on my prayer list, or it's people that you have on your prayer list, people with whom you have relationship, knowing that the gospel of Christ is a salvation bringing grace. This epiphany of grace is intended to save people. Now, God will use my witness, will use your witness, but know that God will save people by this manifestation of grace, which is uh, communicated by, by the uh, uh, sharing that we do every day. Then we arrive at really at the point where I really want to make our uh, settle for a longer length of time. The grace of God, God's epiphany teaches. I know that if we had a chalkboard here, we would lay this out 
the, the primary thought of Titus 2.11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. And now in verse 12, he, he modifies that or extends it by saying that grace of God appears and it teaches. It's an adverbial participle. It's in the present tense, indicating that though God's grace was in the past in Christ to them, that grace now presently teaches them. This grace manifested at the Incarnation and at Calvary presently trains us. The, the word teach is the word here that really is describing what a parent does uh, with their child. We have some newborn uh, babes in our church family. And uh, you, you take a, a child and you take that helpless individual, and as they go through all of the stages of life, they begin to walk, and then they begin to uh, uh, begin to read as as young children. They go through their their early childhood years. They they move into adolescence as teenagers, and then they move into near adulthood where they are not quite independent, but they're moving towards that. Till finally, uh, we thrust them forth. Uh, from our families into their own families. That's literally the word here where Paul says that the grace of God takes you from the youngest, most immature point of life with God and moves you on to maturity. Uh, one wrote of this text, he said the saving economy of God is educative. It, it is teaching. Uh, we are not merely saved or rescued from sin and guilt and then left alone, we are rather brought into relationship with God through Jesus Christ that necessarily involves learning, even as a child is brought through all of the stages of their development. It's like reading a, a, an early primer about Jack and Jill until finally you can read, I don't know how many of you ever, have ever read it, at least seen it, uh, to pick up a huge tome like War and Peace that, that we've learned and now we can take the most complicated uh, works of literature and read them. The grace of God, we find in our text, teaches us both uh, negatively and positively. I know that we don't like to major on negatives, but you'll see it in our text that negatively it teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. The, the ideas there are there are plainly things that God speaks in His Word that are inappropriate and harmful to us. A life apart from God and its pursuits is always harmful. There are the lusts of the world, and they are uh, they're, they're not consistent with the way God desires us to live. And there are some things to which we must say, no, it is not good for me to do that. My life is Christ's, and therefore I do not pursue those activities, those plans, those patterns, uh, those principles. It, it also teaches us uh, positively that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. To be sober is to be of sound mind. It's to be self-controlled regarding our uh, private lives. There are occasions where 
where news reports tell us all the time about what happens when people become drunk and they lose inhibitions, they lose control, they do things which otherwise they would never think as even possible for them. So to be sober means that we're in our right mind and therefore there's appropriate control over our behavior. He says that we need to learn positively how to live righteous, that's right conduct, and that we would live as one devoted to God in this present world. And of course, Paul in this text goes on to say that even as we receive the teaching ministry of grace, which teaches us to say no to ungodliness and yes to living soberly and righteously and godly, we have a a future perspective looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing. Same word as what is used in verse 11, same form, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we're being taught by grace now, and we have a, a hope uh, to which we are looking, and that is the hope of the appearing of our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we think through these texts, I, I want to be really, really practical. What does a, a grace-filled life really look like? Uh, again, quoting uh, uh, a preacher that I quoted last week, uh, Abner Chow said this, Grace has a particular way of working. It has a very particular result from a specific operation. Paul, he says, uh, says the manifestation of grace is driving at salvation from beginning to end. It completes salvation from beginning to end. We somehow think wrongly that we get to determine what grace does. We control what grace does. We know what it's going to do. But that's not grace. You see, grace has a particular result designed by God. We don't control grace. Grace controls us. We don't define grace. Grace defines us, or I might say even more specifically, God's supernatural divine intervention in my life directs and focuses my life. If you happen to uh, download the uh, the PDF of the sermon outline this morning, you'll see all my 18 things that I'm going to list. And, and I want you to, first of all, don't be afraid of that. And prior to sharing those list of 18 indications of what a life impacted by grace looks like. I, I want to hasten to say that this is not another long to-do list. Rather, God's grace has been given to us in, in the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, it's really interesting to think through all that grace gives us. It, it, grace gives us the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It, it gives us a new mind and a new heart. It, it, He's given us His Word, which now when we open His Word, we are able to understand and to see and identify exactly what God's will is for us. He has given the Holy Spirit, and and He is the personal presence of Jesus Christ in my life now. And that Spirit, the Holy Spirit now living in me as the third person of the Trinity, totally transforms my life. You see, When God saves a person, he begins a work that 
starts the day we come to know him by grace through faith and then continues all the way through our earthly, earthly life to the point of being fully glorified, either when we enter the presence by the rapture or by God's process through death and glorification. You see, grace is what God accomplishes in my life. So when I walk through these things, I want to walk through them in a way that will help you understand that grace changes me. Grace impacts me. It's not now a list of things that I must do. Rather, here are indications that God has intervened in my life, and he is a, doing a work that only he could do. And I, I stand back and look at that and say, my, oh my, look at what God has done, even in my own life. And so let's ask the question, how does grace define us? How does it impact us? How does it shape us? How does it change us if, we're, if we've received grace by faith in his Son? And so I'd like to suggest these, and these are probably uh, really good for you for even continuing study. I will only uh, mention them in the briefest fashion. Transforming grace produces perseverance. Acts 13.43 says, And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Jerusalem or to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, continued or urged them to continue in the grace of God. Now, I must persevere. And it requires my active faith and obedience to Christ. For example, we, we could quote Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So, so there's the faith that I must express. But the grace-filled life, the, the one where the grace of God has appeared, perseveres by God's divine activity in their life. I know one of the, uh, one of the hardest things in times of stress and trial through which even now we're going, is simply to persevere in love, in faith, in obedience, in service to God's people, to our community and witness. And God provides grace that we might persevere. Would you see also that God's grace in my life makes me confident? It gives confidence. Acts 15, 11, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. One of the great realities of the gospel and God's work of grace in my life is that though I am a sinner, I am yet confident that God has saved me. Paul said to Timothy, I know whom I have believed. I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which he has committed unto him against that day. You see, we have confidence that God has saved us through the work of Christ. There is growth and sanctification. There is number four. I must move through this rather rapidly. There is the evidence of righteousness. Uh, Romans chapter 5 says, So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Fifth, he speaks of holiness. But many are familiar with Romans 6.1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul recoils in horror. 
God forbid. How shall we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? In chapter 6 again, verse 14, Sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The life that experiences the grace of God will experience humility. Romans 12, 3 says, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. It was by God's grace that Paul served. Or we're very familiar with James 4, also repeated in a different context in 1 Peter 5. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. How, how can it be anything except the expression of humility when we understand that salvation is all of what God did for us? God from eternity past, by his eternal counsel, chose to send his son, equal with him as the father, to make him fully human, and that he might by his work at Calvary fully pay for my sin. All of that is the work of God. Even though I must express faith in Christ, it's really the work that God produces in my heart and life to draw me to that glad day of faith in Christ. Certainly, the life of grace is a life of gratitude. How can it be anything other than we would give thanks to God always for you because of the grace that was given to you in Jesus Christ? There's gratitude when we experience the grace of God. There is ministry that flows from the grace of God. He speaks of the grace of God given that allowed him to be a wise master builder. Even in 1 Corinthians 15, that the grace of God produced hard work. It's a fascinating verse to think through. By the grace of God, Paul says, I am what I am. Uh, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. The grace of God does not produce passivity. It does not produce inactivity. But rather, it produces diligent, hard work. And yet it's the grace of God that is beneath that. The grace of God brings integrity of life. The grace of God brings generosity. I've been meditating through that when we're even going through our COVID-19 difficulty. And the economic impact that that's had upon many, many people within our congregation and within our community. I appreciate what Nancy shared by way of being able to serve and just see the generosity of God's people. Every week when we in the office and then we publish uh, through our bulletin, the way God has continued to generously meet our need through the generosity of God's people. In this Second Corinthians context, Paul marveled and gave thanks for their generosity, even when they gave to address the needs of other believers, though they did that from their own sense of need. You see, the life of grace produces a generous heart. There, there is forgiveness that is present, present when the grace of God is active in our life. A clear conscience before God, we might say. Ephesians 1, 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. 
it's 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 a wonderful thing to be able to be forgiven and then to be able to to forgive because God gives his grace. When the grace of God is present, it governs my speech. It produces speech that is genuinely edifying. And so godly speech is present in the life of the one who is the life full of grace. You are very familiar with Ephesians 4, 29, uh, where it says, Let no corrupt words come out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. There's the presence of a focus on the glory of God, the name of Christ be glorified, and you and him, according to the grace. I, I know still bound up in my heart is that essence of selfishness. But, but when, when God's grace is continually operating in my life, I, I, I begin to see that it's not all about me. It really is all about the name and the fame and the glory and the honor of our triune God. And so God's grace operating helps me bring that focus to the glory of God. There is strength. Second Timothy 2, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I know Debbie and I have been trying to walk through this together when we're dealing with all of the physical and financial and the emotional weight that walking through this uh, coronavirus brings. And there are times when we when we're without strength and we come to God and we say simply, we need your help. We need your help to do what we cannot, we cannot accomplish on our own. We need to be faithful in enduring even when we are weak. There's the presence of love. Titus chapter 3 says, All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And so here's the presence of love for Christ and even love for other people because God's grace has been operating in my life. There's endurance and suffering. 1 Peter 5, 10. He says, when you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If we are to endure, in suffering, it will be due to God's grace as He providentially intervenes in our life, uh, doing what He alone can do and accomplishing what He can alone accomplish for His glory and honor. And though, now I've taken those all in order through the New Testament, I, I've taken this one out of order so that I might let this be our final focus, and that is that God's transforming grace produces weakness. We're really familiar with the text of 2 Corinthians 12. Paul, three times coming to the Lord saying, I have this chronic, unchanging, physical infirmity, and it has made it impossible for me to serve and function well. Now, we sometimes make light of that, but we don't know what that infirmity was, but it was so overwhelming. Quite literally, Paul said, I, I cannot live or serve any longer. And yet, three times God came to Paul and said, no, I'm not going to take away that physical infirmity because I, I want my power to rest upon you. He says, 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ. So there you see grace. It's the power of Christ intervening in my life, uh, providing for me what I do not have, accomplishing what I cannot accomplish on my own. And therefore, God's grace is sufficient for us. Therefore, the text literally says that we may boast. It's our badge of honor. It's what we speak of that when we are aware of our weakness, we gladly speak of it because to speak of it brings focus and attention to the wonder and the glory of who Jesus is. I've had, to be honest with you, I've had some rather notable uh, failures in my life. I, I was mentioning to Pastor Brad through the uh, week, uh, uh, one of the high points and one of the low points of my life was as a senior in, high, in college. We're in the championship game for Division II NCCAA championship game. And, and if only I were a better foul shooter, foul shot uh, shooter. Uh, I, I was fouled in the last seconds of the game. I made only one of two foul shots, and we lost by one point. And for a career, now those of you who are basketball players, you may think this is good. It's not really good for a point guard. Uh, for my four-year career in college, I averaged 67% at the free throw line, which is not. I see Pastor Jason off in the back smiling because he evidently was better than I. That is not very good when you've got the ball in your hands all the time. And I typically don't boast about how poor I was as a shooter. In in college particularly, I was a scorer, but I was not a shooter. I just I didn't have that skill. And so we, we don't normally boast of weakness. We don't normally talk about it. And yet the weaknesses of our life are opportunities for God by, by, by the Holy Spirit to address needs in our life, uh, to do what He alone can do and to accomplish what He alone can accomplish so that at the end of it, our focus is upon the wonder and the glory of who Christ is. And we will even verbalize our weakness because after all, when we are weak, it is then that we are strong because then the power of Christ does rest upon us. One, one put it this way, uh, God's grace is his unilateral intervention. He is 100%, which demands us to be zero. So the, the intervention of God's grace is so vitally necessary. I want you to think with me today about how, how we can live and thrive and serve and witness, and love, and give, be able to be the church in very unusual circumstances. And I will say, frankly, it's by God's grace that we do that. God's grace, Jesus Christ, received, saves, and transformed. The sinner's life, my life, your life.